0: Would you turn in your Bibles, if you have them, or just look up here, Uh, this will be placed for you. Uh, We're going to be looking this morning at just three little verses, Um, 1 John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, going to read them and then uh, try to make clear to you why I think it's so important that every one of us knows these verses deeply, has them inscribed on our hearts and minds. So 1 John chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. The word of the Lord, thanks, thanks be to God. God. Okay, clear, this is always the case, but I just remind you, I'm preaching to myself, and you all are just welcome to listen because I, perhaps more than any here, need need these verses and need to hear them afresh this morning john is giving us vital signs so that we can know whether or not we are alive or dead spiritually you know what vital signs are if you go into the hospital they take your blood pressure pulse and respiration on a regular basis so that they can track them and you look at the chart it looks like a mountain range kind of running across there. You hope it doesn't have a huge valley suddenly. Uh, What John is giving us is a threefold test of whether or not we are children of God, whether or not we have hope of eternal life. Now, how do I know that? For this reason, John had the wonderful habit of telling us at the end of his works the reason that he wrote them. So, if you Paul, in the Gospel according to John, at the end of the penultimate chapter, chapter 20, he ends by saying, Jesus did many more signs than I've recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So you may be thinking, well, there's the answer. He's already told us if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in his name, You have life. The problem is this if you're a careful reader of the gospel, when you come to that verse, you're still a little perplexed because you remember that back at the end of chapter two of John's gospel, he had written, Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at Passover season, many believed in his name when they saw the things that he did. But he did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts and needed no one to tell him what was in the heart of man. And that's why we have the story of Nicodemus. That's a terrible chapter division. There should be no new chapter because it says he knew what was in the heart of man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. I'll give you exhibit A of the problem with those who believed in his name, but not yet savingly. So there is a believing in Jesus' name that does not lead to life and a believing in Jesus' name which does lead to life. So where are we with this? Well, that's why he then wrote this first letter. And he tells us in verse 13, if you could, it's here, thank you, if you look at verse 13, he says, now this is why I've written this letter to you. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life so he writes the gospel so that you will believe but then he knows that you might say yeah i believe but lots of people claim to believe how do i know how can i have assurance the letter of first john is the one book of the bible that was written for that one reason so that if you want to know if you're god's child if you want to know that you have eternal life you go to first john and we're given three vital signs now, it's crucial that we know these vital signs, why? Let me tell you a story that I would think was apocryphal, except that my brother told it to me, and he's a very trustworthy fellow. He um, he trained uh, to be a surgeon, and to be a doctor and then a surgeon up in Boston, and was for many, many years uh, at Massachusetts General Hospital. Now, Massachusetts General Hospital has I knew it did then. I googled yesterday to make it sure that it still does, and it does indeed. Have a ward that's actually like a absolutely brilliant hotel. It's called the Phillips House. And insurance doesn't pay for it. You pay for it. They said in, on Google yesterday that it's, it's uh, over $400 a day uh, to have your room there, and it's like a well-appointed hotel suite, all mahogany, mahogany. It's just beautiful. Silver tea services on the sideboard, so that you feel, as the Boston Brahmin, that they're still back on Beacon Hill. And there's even another uh, little guest bed area for any friends that want to come visit you. They have their own designated chef. I don't know if it's still true, but back when my brother was there years and years ago, when we were both young men, It was also the place where they farmed out nurses who had burned out on the wards. Now they could just be well paid to sit in a chair and take care of one person. And one of my brother's friends went in for grand rounds one morning, had all his uh, medical students around him, and as soon as he walked in, he just looked and could see that his patient had been dead for some time. And the private-duty nurse, an elderly woman, was sitting next to him crocheting happily and smiled, doctor, and he looked, looked. So he walked over, pulled up the chart, and the vital signs were neatly telegraphed right up until about 10 minutes earlier. And so he walked over to her and pulled down the sheet, and showed her that the patient was dead, and pointed at the vital signs, said, what's the meaning of this? And she burst into tears and said, I, I'm so sorry. He had not been able to sleep for the last two days. I thought finally he was asleep. I didn't have the heart to wake him up to take his vital signs. When I first heard it, I thought, well, gosh, that's crazy. But then I thought of some of the congregations I've preached to. <laughs> and I thought, you know, you get up there, you've been singing, you've been greeting friends. Everybody looks like, ah, oh, it's been a hard week. You know, tomorrow's Monday for just a moment. I just want to rest here with my brothers and sisters. And as a pastor, you think, is it just heartless to try to wake them up and take their vital signs? (laughs) But I'm going to be heartless this morning, starting with myself, because John, in these three verses, takes the three vital signs of the spiritual life and finally brings them all together and summarizes them. To put it formally, there is a doctrinal test. There is a relational test and there is an ethical test, more to our own existential experience. There's a concern about how we think, there's a concern about how we relate to one another, and there's a concern about how we live. So these tests are aimed at the mind and the heart and the will. And the first one is aimed at the mind. It is the central doctrinal for a Christian. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, okay? But what does it mean to, be, to believe in him? How do I know if I'm really believing? But he starts there. We'll get to the other. Now, when he says, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, what he's saying, he is bringing together. It's as though you hit that link. If, if this were underlined in blue, Uh, on your computer, and you hit that link, and it suddenly took you to every messianic text in the Old Testament, to all of the teaching about Jesus in the Gospels, to everything that Paul wrote, and Peter wrote, and John has written, reflecting back on Jesus Christ. The Christ, as you know, simply means the anointed. It's the Greek word that uh, in, in Hebrew is Messiah. So it's, he is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is everything that God promised in order to redeem his people? Do you believe that? Because if you do, truly, that becomes the great central unifying principle in your life. That is how you interpret the Scriptures. That is how you interpret, frankly, family life, work life, play life. If he is the Christ of God and you are his, then that is the unifying thought of your life. Most of us aren't that way. We come to church, we're Christians, we go to a Bible study, we talk about spiritual things, but then when we, let's talk about uh, the most divisive thing in our country right now, politics. Most of us immediately join our group and look with contempt on people that don't share our views, don't hold our views, and, and we're not thinking in terms of Christ. We're not saying, what does this have to do with being having my citizenship in the kingdom of God and just being a sojourner here? But instead, we jump to our places. Or when we talk about music, we suddenly talk about our tastes or art or literature or anything. We tend to just compartmentalize our lives. And this is my spiritual thing. I'm a Christian. But... I'm not sure what that has to do with my taste in anything else or my decisions about what I do on vacation or where I go or whether or not I'm going to support this missionary or anything. So this doctrinal center always comes back to Christ, and it isn't just a vague... I hear people all the time now say, well, I'm not into organized religion. I, who have spent 45 years in organized... Well, and I grew up in it as a pastor's son... I always want to say to them, you have no idea how unorganized religion is. (laughs) Organized religion, that's an oxymoron. It's the most disorganized thing you could ever conceive of. But anyway, leave that aside. But but this thing that, I'm just spiritual. I'm just spiritual. Well, of course you are. Everyone is spiritual. God had made us that way. But that's of no help whatsoever to you unless you've heard what God says His spirit to your spirit. So, without belaboring it anymore, just remember that there is this important doctrinal component, and it always arises from interpreting Scripture and interpreting life from the story of Jesus, knowing him more and more in order that we might understand. Remember supremely this. What did Jesus come to show us? He came to show us two things, who God is, and who we are meant to be. We wonder about God. What would God think? What would he? Then we look at Jesus. And it's the reason that the religious people rejected him, because he didn't hang out with their gang. He went to have table fellowship with the people that they thought weren't worthy of it, the unclean. And he said, I want you to know this is my Father's heart. This is who God is. You see me. You see the Father. But because you and I are made in the image of God when we look at Jesus, we are then seeing also whom we are meant to be and what he aims to make us. What, in fact, we will one day be by grace. That's the first thing. Second thing, he turns to the heart. And he says, if you're his, you're going to love others who are his. You're going to love them. That doesn't mean you're going to like them all. Those are two different things. But you're going to love them. And to love means, essentially, you wish them well. You want God's blessings for them. And you are willing, whether you like them or not, to do whatever God enables you to do to help them flourish, to help them do well. I I grew up in a pastor's family, a wonderful, godly Christian home, where we were taught the things of God every night. I told Cedar Springs this a couple weeks ago. We we had devotions every night. Dad, out of the King James, reading the next passage and explaining it to us. And it was a wonderful education. And because I was surrounded by brothers and a sister who had been filled with the Holy Spirit from their mother's womb, like John the Baptist, everybody was enthralled and I wanted to be out playing with my friends. So then, when we prayed all the way around, you know, I just couldn't wait for it to be over. I thought I was a believer because I believed all these things to be true, but I had no heart for it. And I looked increasingly at the people in the church, and I was not attracted to them. I was attracted to what was out there and lived for the day that I would be gone from home and could go out and taste and experience all that had been, I thought, denied me. Until after a few years of being out there and tasting and seeing and experiencing and waking and thinking, what am I doing? This is nothing. This this does not lead to life. This leads to bondage and death. Will I ever find my way home? I knew that God was at work in my life because suddenly for the first time in a decade, I wanted to go to church and sit in the midst of God's people. I wanted to hear the people singing those old hymns that I didn't like. We didn't have new songs yet. This was way back in the, uh, in the ancient ages. Um, but I wanted those because I just, I would tasted and seen what was out there. And I'd realized That that is inauthentic. It does not lead to life. It cannot answer my deepest questions. And so God was changing my heart. And you and I should, when we look around at our brothers and sisters and realize this is my family, that is one of the vital signs. That's one of the ways that God says to you, you're my child, this is your family. Now, hopefully, we have lots of friends outside the church and are loving them and appreciating them and seeing them as the treasures they are as made in God's image and wanting to be there in their lives to show them who the Lord is and if the door opens, to tell them what God has done for us. But where is your heart? Do you love God's people? Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was, I think, the greatest uh, English-language preacher in the 19th. In the 20th century, Uh, he preached at Westminster Chapel, London, all through. He had been a doctor, and he'd been on the staff of Lord Hordern, who was physician to the King of England. So he was on the fast track, young Welshman. But increasingly, God was stirring in his heart and giving him a, a longing, as he said, to care for more than just the body. He said so many who came to him, he realized, the deeper issues that were manifesting physical physically were issues of the soul. And he was struggling with this and he went one night to, uh, to hear uh, uh, what's great piece by Wagner with the Pilgrims' Chorale, where the pilgrims are singing, oh, you'd know it if it played. Uh, and, and there's this tug correlate between, between the world and this choir that's, dry, angelic choir drawing you away. And as they went up out of the theater, it was raining, typical cold, rainy Leicester Square night in London. And he's with all these attractive, you know, bright people that he'd, he'd made it. And he said he looked over, and standing in the rain was a bedraggled Salvation Army band just play, playing away as everybody walked by. And he said his heart leaped, and he said, that's my family, right there. Those are my people. That's what God does, you see. We realize that Jesus is the Christ, and that only from that central truth can we understand anything else of ultimate meaning. And then he begins to change our hearts so that we now are drawn to the very people that perhaps growing up. Once upon a time, we ran away from. We want to be part of God's people. One of the things that saddens me most in, in the American church right now is that when I was, even when I first went to Cedar Springs in January of 1990, the average evangelical Christian was in church unless they were sick or out of town. And now evangelical churches, I'm, I've read, Their people average 1.5 times a month in church. Now, I'm talking to you in church. I'm not trying to guilt trip you, but I'm just expressing this is a sadness. Why? Because it shows that people are being drawn away from that central fellowship, from family, where our hearts are renewed together and we pour out our gifts in serving one another. Okay, enough on that. We come to the last. This is going to be a short one. Rejoice and be glad. Um, We come to really the big one, certainly for me. I, you know, I long ago came to believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah, he's God's anointed, and that all things must be interpreted through him. And God in his grace has given me over the years a greater and greater love for for God's people. But the final one is, he says, we also love God. Well, how do we know that we love him? Is it that we love singing praise songs? Well, if we love him, we should. Is it that we get moved and stirred in hearing preaching? Well, hopefully sometimes, yes. But that's not what he tells us. He says, this is love for God, that we obey his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Wow! Every time I read that, I get my comeuppance. Uh, most things, that's fine. I'm, I'm a little like Oscar Wilde. Uh, Oscar Wilde said, I can resist anything except temptation. Uh, you know, things that don't tempt me, your sins, oh, I, I'm holy. I, I got no problem with the things that tempt you, but don't tempt me. But things that, that come at me and surprise me catch me off guard. He doesn't just say, we obey. He says, obeying is not burdensome. In other words, we don't go, all right, I am a Christian. I can't do this. I know that the end of this is death, so I won't do it. John Piper has a beautiful illustration of this. Um, he, He said, It wasn't of this text. I don't even remember what he was talking about, but it was years ago I heard him use this. I've always related it to this. He said, well, I know what it is. It's his central theme of all of his books, which is that the great lie that the devil tells us is that we have a choice between glorifying God or satisfying ourselves. And he says that is a lie because God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him and we are most satisfied when God is most glorified in us. So he calls it Christian hedonism, a name that got him in trouble. But his point is, the great, we were made for God. We were made to serve him. And our greatest joy is when we do just that. So he said, imagine if I, thats that John, on his anniversary, was on his way home, and he realizes, ah, oh, it's my anniversary. I didn't get flowers for Noel, it's his wife's name, so... I forgot to get her flowers. So he said, imagine if I turn around, drive back in the city, search all over, finally find a florist with a dozen good-looking roses, buy them, get in the car, go home, go in, say, happy anniversary, Noel, hand her the roses. And she says, oh, John, you shouldn't. And I say, you have no idea what a pain it was. I was almost, I was almost home. I was almost home, and I remembered it was our anniversary, and I thought... I drove back into the city, Noel, and I searched, it took me an hour to go around. I finally found, so here, I hope you really, he said, would my wife say to me, you know, John, if you'd wanted to, that would be sweet, but the fact that you found these flowers for me, even when you don't want to, I just feel so honored. He said, no, she would probably tell me at that point what I could do with those flowers, (laughs) you know. Um, In other words, we only honor one another when we do it out of a desire and out of love. And so John is saying, you know that you are his child. You know that you've been born anew when increasingly it is your desire to do the will of God. And when you don't do it, your heart is broken. You're grieved. You confess. You repent. You say, restore me to fellowship. Now, I want... To make one caveat, especially for young people here, uh, that doesn't mean that if you can't do it out of love, you shouldn't do it. Uh, I I remember struggles I had with my son when he was little to get him to uh, clean up his room. Imagine if I had gone up and said, what are you doing? I told you to clean up your room. If he had said to me. You know, Dad, I was starting to do it, but I realized I was just doing it out of a sense of obligation and obedience. It was so legalistic. And I realized there was no value if I couldn't do it out of joy. Would I say, you are just a brilliant little theological tyro. (laughs) No, I would say, frankly, my dear, I don't give a, you know, (laughs) what your motive is just now. You obey me or you are going to experience the posterior application of a superior force. (laughs) But we hope that we grow into a desire for obedience. My dad made me do things when I was young. When he was old and retired up in Montreat, I would drive up and say, Dad, have you cleaned your gutters? Where's your ladder? Let me do that. Please let me do something for you while I'm here. And you and I are to be growing into that in Christ. So what are the three tests? It's a matter of the head. Is the central organizing principle of your life, not just religious stuff, but your life, increasingly that God has come to us? He has made himself one with us, and he has shown us who he is and who we are meant to be. And everything that I do, I desire increasingly to flow From that great truth, that I may be increasingly conformed to his image? Are our hearts drawn increasingly to one another, to the people of God, because we realize we are members of one body? This is where it is. This is home. We're here for the sake of the world, and we aren't closed in. We're not looking at them as the enemy. No. We are here for them. And as we love one another well, we want to be the one community where any person can come, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what they look like, no matter what they believe, and realize that this is a group of people who will embrace me and love me well because that's what God has done for them. And do we desire to keep his commands and are our hearts grieved when we don't. I end with one story, maybe I, did I talk about Spurgeon's? This is a great thing about being 74, you know, I just, I can keep, I can tell you the same story over and over, when I was here, did I tell Spurgeon's story of the pig and the lamb? You're sweet, you're gonna say now. Okay. If you heard it before, this will nail it down. If Lloyd-Jones was the greatest preacher of, of the 20th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was acknowledged universally to be the greatest uh, English-speaking preacher of the 19th century. And he you know, was in London, drew these crowds of just thousands upon thousands of people to hear the word made fresh. But he would often, even though it was the city, most of the people in the city had grown up in the country, and he would often illustrate from the country. And one of my favorites on this whole idea is he said... Every one of us knows the difference between a pig and a lamb. He said, a lamb hates the mud. It hates getting dirty. And it tries to keep as far away from the mud holes as it can. But every now and then something happens or it rains hard and it slips in and gets covered with mud and it can't wait to get out of there and get somewhere and get clean." He said, a pig, on the other hand, is looking around for the mud hole, and he's never happier than when he's up to his nose in the mud hole. And he said, that's one of the ways you can know whether or not you're born again. You used to seek it out and love it, and you're never happier than when you're sinning. If you're a child of God, it breaks your heart. You wonder, how could I have done this again? How could I have fallen for this again? And you can't wait to get as far away as possible and have the cleaning, washing, joy of the redemption we have in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are God's children. He loves us so much. And he wants us increasingly to show the world who he is. Let's seek to do that.